Welcome to Faith and Family, a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. And now from Greenville, South Carolina, here's your host, Steve Wood. Hello, this is Steve Wood, and welcome to Faith and Family. This is episode 319. You might just want to make a record of that in case you want some of the information I'm going to be talking about today. But our topic is this. What's ahead for the pro-life movement? And really, where should the pro-life movement go? It seems that we're facing some pretty serious times ahead. But the way to move the pro-life movement forward, and I've said this several times, is the pro-life train. And the pro-life train has the engine, which is cult. And I don't mean like the Moonies cult, but by cult, I'm talking about the religion of a nation. And cult, when it's healthy, grows a healthy culture. Culture is like the in-between car, the coal car of the train. It follows the engine of faith. And then finally, politics is the caboose. It's definitely part of the train. It needs to be part of the train, but it doesn't lead. And honestly, I think you would say many efforts and attention of the pro-life movement is a train going backwards. And it's absolutely essential we get this right. And so as long as abortion is legal in the United States, I'm going to be talking about this. So I'm going to be talking today about what I think is the only political means of overturning Roe versus Wade after the Biden and Harris administration, at least in our lifetimes. And before I do that, though, just a real brief mention on cult, that's the religion, and culture, which grows out of the religion. The key faith dynamic for creating a culture of life, as well as nurturing the faith, is the family. The family is the cell of society. The, the family is the place where faith is first nurtured. And the pope of the family, St. John Paul II, said, the family is the sanctuary of life. And again, I don't know if we really hear this, even though he said this in 1992, but let's try to hear this. The first essential structure capable of changing the culture of death is definitely the family. The family must become the center of every social, political activity. And then finally, from the gospel of life, the role of the family in building a culture of life is decisive and irreplaceable. Now, let's, let's take these words of St. John Paul II and really receive them, not as nice, pious statements of a pope to kind of warm our hearts and minds for a moment or something, but developing a pro-life strategy that would follow this. And the special challenge, and this is Steve's suggestion, but the special challenge facing both the church and the family in the 21st century is this. It's to provide a strong enough spiritual formation for young Christians so that they can survive and thrive in the midst of our toxic culture. 
this is not happening right now. And so we're, we're needing to make some changes because what is happening isn't good. By isn't good, I'm referring to the dropout rate for older teens and young adults is around 60%, growing quickly towards two-thirds of those who are actively involved in church, Protestants and Catholics, then dropping out when they hit early adulthood. Now, if we can't stop the hemorrhage of Christian youth, then our political future is dark, okay? So this is where we really have to go. We can't kind of like just say, well, we're having this hemorrhage and hopefully it'll turn around. Meanwhile, let's spend more on pro-life politics. No, we need to put some attention, some dollars, some effort and focus on strengthening the family and in particular, the family's unique challenge right now is keeping young people in the faith. George Barna, the pollster, found out that three-quarters of Catholic priests agreed that, quote, reaching a younger audience is a major issue facing their parish today, and nearly half of the Catholic priests surveyed said it is the top concern facing their parish today. It's reaching the youth. So that's for cults and culture. We don't want to overlook that. But I realize here we are in January, right after an election that's still being contested. But nonetheless, uh, politics is very much on our minds. And I'm going to talk about what I consider the most probable way to overturn Roe versus Wade in our lifetime. And yet in doing so, I don't want to overlook that the pro-life train is cult, culture, politics in that order. Okay, with that said, I'm going to um, be a prophet for a minute, and I don't think I'm going to be too much of a prophet, but I predict President Biden and Harris will pack the Supreme Court. Now, what do I mean by that? Packing the Supreme Court means adding the number of seats uh, for justices on the Supreme Court. President Roosevelt announced his, his intention to try this in 1937, and what President Biden could do would be to add to the number of justices on the court so that the influence of the more conservative majority justices becomes diluted, and thereby enabling all kinds of legal rulings on a lot of um, bad precedents, including those relating to marriage, life, uh, and all aspects of our culture. Now, one reason I think this is going to happen is that the dictionary is changing. And they're gonna, they've already changed the dictionary during the presidential election. And that, to me, is a precursor for the change coming to the court. In other words, increasing the number of justices to, to dilute particularly the more conservative justices appointed by President Trump. Uh, the National Pulse website picked this up, and it was very perceptive. Dictionary.com, an online dictionary, uh, changed its definition of court packing, which I just explained to you, uh, during the election season. Uh, before the election, the definition read as such, an unsuccessful attempt by President Franklin D. Roosevelt in 1937 to appoint up to six additional justices to the Supreme Court, 
which had invalidated a number of his New Deal laws. Uh, President Roosevelt came up with his progressive New Deal laws, and the Supreme Court said they weren't constitutional. He didn't like that, so he was going to change the court with adding progressive justices to the court so that they can't overturn his laws. Well, this is what Dictionary.com came up with, adding a second definition to court packing during the election season. And it says this, the practice of changing the number or composition of judges on a court, making it more favorable or particular to particular goals or ideologies. You see, it's just sweeter sounding, just making it more favorable to achieving your particular goals or ideologies. In other words, killing innocent children, for instance. Um, that's court packing. That's changing. Now, here we go with the number one pro-life political strategy. I've shared this before. And quite honestly, I don't think much has come of it. But maybe since this is what is going to happen, I'm predicting that. So if you see a President Biden and Harris administration trying to pack the U.S. Supreme Court. And then, oh, I remember Steve was talking something about this. Well, once that happens, if you've ignored me when I've suggested this in the past, now is the time to kick this into gear. The number one political pro-life strategy is stripping the U.S. Supreme Court of jurisdiction over pro-life and abortion-related cases. This comes straight out of the U.S. Constitution, Article 3, Section 2, and I encourage you to look it up online. Just It's a paragraph, and it says, in all cases of affecting in ambassadors and states, the Supreme Court shall have original jurisdiction. In other words, um, in cases relating to other nations, in cases relating to states, Supreme Court has original jurisdiction. But in all other cases, all these things like prayer and school, same-sex marriage, uh, a pro-life uh, rulings, Roe versus Wade, all other cases before mentioned, the Supreme Court shall have appellate jurisdiction. In other words, it'll have jurisdiction to hear that those cases. But with such exceptions and under such regulations as the Congress shall make. Now, I'm going to give you a statement that is probably not heard 99% of the schools and high schools, even colleges, and except for maybe a handful of law schools, is not even taught. The Supreme Court isn't supreme in the United States. The Supreme Court is supreme over courts. But according to the U.S. Constitution, the supreme branch of our government is Congress, and it's immediately accountable to the people. Congress can decide which cases the Supreme Court can even hear. And if they want to, Congress can limit the Supreme Court's authority. Is this, does this require a several years' effort of a constitutional amendment? No. It takes a majority of vote, a majority vote of both houses of Congress and the president's signature. No supermajorities or anything like that. And Roe versus Wade can be neutralized. And the same thing goes for the Supreme Court's same-sex marriage ruling. 
I know what you're thinking. Well, this just can't be true. Because if this is true, why didn't the George W. Bush administration do this? I mean, the Republicans had a golden opportunity to strip Roe versus Wade of its tyranny over the states outlawing abortion. Why didn't they do it? I dare say that's probably one of the better questions the pro-life movement needs to answer. And one of the better questions that pro-life organizations and their leadership needs to answer. Now, I have on my desk a remarkable 27-page document from 1981. It's a PDF, and if you want a copy of this, it's filled with a lot of legalese, but if you want a copy, you can download it free from a government website. And just remember to contact us for info during a broadcast. You email askthehost at gmail.com. And this is episode 319. If you can give us an episode number, we can get you a handout real easy. Otherwise, we have to dig a little bit. Okay. The remarkable thing about this PDF download I'm talking about, this document from 1981, it was prepared way back in the Reagan administration when they were frustrated by the U.S. Supreme Court blocking the reversal of Roe versus Wade. I mean, if Roe versus Wade happened, I mean, I guess some people could claim ignorance when life began. But my goodness, how can you in a modern world say life doesn't begin at conception and then say it's therefore it's okay to take the life of a preborn child? No, it's ridiculous. In any case, the Reagan administration asked uh, its attorney general, Ken Starr, to prepare a paper uh, for the Reagan administration, what could be done to get rid of the Supreme Court blocking the reversal of Roe versus Wade. And Ken Starr had a special assistant who prepared this 27-page paper. Now, the $24,000 question in today's broadcast, what is the name of that special assistant to Attorney General Ken Starr preparing that paper for the Reagan administration, how to get the Supreme Court out of the way from overturning Roe versus Wade. Do you know what that special assistant's name is? John Roberts, who happens today, as I speak, to be the Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court. Now, in the past, when I've advocated this, I had an attorney write me, Steve, don't don't say that stuff. What you're doing is going to destroy the U.S. Constitution. And here, the man who is now Chief Justice of the U.S. Supreme Court wrote a 27-page paper saying, yes, the Constitution does give Congress authority over which cases the Supreme Court hears, except for that very narrow ones about ambassadors and contests between states. For instance, this is this is from John Roberts' paper presented to the Reagan administration. And I'm quoting, Senator Irvin, a senator back then, noted during hearings on the exception clause, in other words, how to strip the court of being able to hear these cases, he said this, I don't believe 
that the founding fathers could have been any simpler or plainer in, the, in saying that what is the appellate jurisdiction of the court is, that is, is dependent entirely upon the will of Congress. And Judge Roberts cited the fact that an older, unanimous Supreme Court decision upheld the power of Congress to divest the Supreme Court of jurisdiction. Now, let me bring this uh, kind of into the present. After the U.S. Supreme Court, can you imagine this? In the day in which we're living, the highest court of the land, very educated men and everything else coming up with the idea that marriage between a man and a man or a woman and a woman is somehow legal and proper and good and therefore required by law in the United States of America. Now, President Trump, after the Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage, said this, you have these cases that have already gone to the Supreme Court, they've been settled, and I'm fine with that. Now, that's what President Trump said, and I would dare say his Republican advisors should have been booted. I don't think he was even informed that the Constitution of the United States gives Congress the ability to do something about it. It's not settled. The Congress of the United States can judge laws. That's part of their job is to create them. They can judge them as well. And they have more authority on the Supreme Court because they can cut out the Supreme Court from judging laws and do that judgment themselves through a legal process. Now, let's take this a step further. In 2005, Representative Ron Paul from Texas, he's the one who ran for president of the United States uh, a few times. I heard him once at a political rally. He was more like a teacher or a professor than a political candidate. He was trying to basically teach his views through his political campaign. But in any case, in 2005, Ron Paul introduced H.R. 776. And if you want to read a summary of this, you just Google 2005 HR 776. There's modern HR 776's bills. You not want you don't want that one. You want the one from 2005. And he introduced the bill entitled The Sanctity of Life Act. And here's what it says. Human life shall be deemed to exist from conception without regard to race, sex, age, health, defect, or condition of dependency, and the term person shall include all such human life. Recognizes that each state has the authority to protect the lives of unborn children residing in the jurisdiction of that state. Of course, that's what the Supreme Court took away from the states. And it amends the federal judicial code to remove Supreme Court and district court jurisdiction to review such cases relating to abortion. Now, you would think, okay, this is 2005. 
and Republicans had a Republican pro-life president and a Congress and Senate filled with Republicans who claimed to be pro-life, and they did nothing. In 24 hours, you could have had a simple vote, taken that legislation to President George W. Bush, and overturned Roe versus Wade. Now, I realize you don't hear this much, and what's really sad is that how many pro-life organizations properly inform their members about the legal strategy of stripping the Supreme Court of its authority over Roe versus Wade? How many notified their supporters that Ron Paul's earth-shaking bill could end, end Roe versus Wade's authority over this country? Could have ended it, and yet nothing was done. I read one article on this that the author said he couldn't think of a one major pro-life organization that did any significant thing whatsoever with Ron Paul's bill, the Sanctity of Life bill. And we have been involved in a 40-plus year effort to elect a president, to appoint justices so we get a majority, and therefore reverse Roe versus Wade and Everybody was ecstatic when President Trump nominated Judge Amy. So, you know, we now have conservative majority, Roe versus Wade, it's on its way. And now it doesn't look too good, particularly if the Biden-Harris administration can pack the court. Okay, we lost a golden opportunity. And then uh, Ron Paul reintroduced uh, his bill in 2009, but it didn't go anywhere. And it was very interesting. I remember one time, I forgot what year it was, I was living in Florida at the time. Ron Paul was running for president as, as a Republican, and he had a, a real solid group of people behind him. And I'm not talking about all his other political views, I'm just talking about his pro-life views. Um, when the Republican convention was being held in Tampa, they didn't even give him a speaking slot that week. They put him over at the University of South Florida dome apart from the whole event. And, you know, this just can't be. Um, the, the politics of pro-life organizations is weak. Now, I'll tell you what will happen. Um, if I was on secular radio... I don't want to give anybody suggestions, but uh, I don't know if my radio studio would be standing. The secular media would just go nuts. They're counting on ignorance of the Constitution of the United States. They're counting on the ignorance that the authority that Congress has over the U.S. Supreme Court. They're counting on that, that nobody will bring that up. And once it, it is brought up, then the heat will start. And pro-life politicians will take the easiest route they get uh, in order to get elected. Now, here's what I suggest. I believe it's time to graciously, and I underscore graciously, we don't want to um, <laughs> attack pro-life organizations, okay? We do not. We do not. We want to support them. 
it's time to gracefully but very firmly turn up the heat on pro-life organizations and all candidates for office. Let me explain. You simply notify your favorite pro-life organization, and my guess, send them a generous check. Uh, Probably most of the, or at least a huge percentage of the people listening to this broadcast gives money to pro-life organizations. I suggest you continue to do so, but just with your donation, just mention that your future donations to that organization will be dependent upon their identifying and promoting candidates who pledge support for stripping the Supreme Court of jurisdiction over abortion, and since I'm kind of a family guy, and same-sex marriage cases, okay? They have to pledge support. Now, I'm saying all pro-life candidates, well, maybe except for coroner, that's kind of a dead-end office, but other offices, yes. Why? Because those elected to the lower offices go to your local you know, councils and this and that, uh, they'll go on to state offices. And from state offices, they'll go to Washington. So get them, nip them in the bud. Just I'm running as a pro-life whatever. Are you willing to pledge uh, your support to strip the U.S. Supreme Court of its authority over Roe versus Wade? They're probably not going to know what you're talking about. So we probably need to prepare like a little fact sheet and stuff like that so they can get most of the best books on this are outrageously expensive because I think they're out of print. But we want to do this, and we have to turn up the heat. I'll just share briefly, uh, back in the day, I guess it was around 1990 or a little before, um, I was involved with uh, Operation Rescue, which was the nonviolent, peaceful sitting down in front of the door of abortion clinics and, and preventing abortions from happening that morning or that day. And it was treating abortion as it was murder, okay? Uh, Abortion isn't just a political issue. It's a murder issue. And, And what the leaders of Operation Rescue felt is that a lot of pro-life political leaders didn't treat it that way. And so, believe it or not, the leaders of Operation Rescue asked me to begin the first statewide political arm of Operation Rescue and get real tough with pro-life candidates and and follow up and get rid of the hypocrites, the ones that say they are and, and end up doing nothing. You know, it's very easy to say you're pro-life, but pledge. You're willing to strip the Supreme Court. Press will go after you. So what? Let's get going. We have a total of 469 seats of U.S. Congress will be up for election in 22 months, November 8th, 2022. Let's get going, build a coalition to strip the U.S. Supreme Court of its authority in Roe versus Wade. I'm Steve Wood, your host, and you've been listening to episode 319 of Faith and Family Radio. Faith and Family is a radio outreach of Family Life Center International. Visit us online at dads.org.